All right, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Saberson's DFS Office Hours. It is Monday, July 25th of 2022. Happy Monday. We've got a brand new week in front of us here. My name is Jordan. I'm the head coach at Saberson. And on this show, I answer questions from the Saberson community about how to use our tools to build better DFS lineups. So if you are listening or watching along, whether you're live here with me uh, or catching the recording of this and you have questions that you'd like to ask, uh, you can fire away in the Office Hours channel in our Slack community. Uh, there's a link to join in the description of every past show as well if you're not already a part of that Slack community. If you are watching me live here, uh, you can, as always, fire away in the live YouTube chat as well. Uh, and finally, you can ask your questions by email, support at sabersim.com. Email us in any questions you have, uh, and I will tackle them on the very next show. We just have a couple of questions in our queue here for today. One about uh, stacking sizes in MLB DFS, uh, five threes, uh, five stacks, uh, correlating different, different players together. So we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, I did see this one here as well. Patrick said, thoughts on the conundrum mess in the in the DFS FanDuel and sports betting side for yesterday's NASCAR slate. I have no idea what ha I have no idea what you're talking about. To be completely honest, you have to catch me up a little bit more. Uh, I didn't play any NASCAR DFS this weekend, and uh, it seems like I maybe missed some drama. Um, so I, I don't have a clue what happened, but uh, I'm always down for some drama. So catch me up um, on on what happened there. But uh, let's get the app pulled up. We'll go ahead and jump into our kind of like first real strategy question here. This was from James. Um, there's kind of kind of a couple different points to unpack here with this one. Um, so let's pull this up and start talking about it here. Uh, so the question says, do you think it's more beneficial to roster 5-3 and the three players on separate teams are the same team? Do you believe 5-3 is optimal? Most GBPs are getting too common. Uh, and then the second point of, I was always of the opinion that three outfielders from the same team is negative EV and rostering them from separate teams is positive EV. Okay, so let's go, let's go in order here. So talking about stack sizes, right? Um, okay, so first of all, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this by saying these kinds of rules of thumb and heuristics about like this stack type is a good one and this one is a bad one really misses a lot of nuance and it specifically misses slate nuance and it misses uh con contest nuance, right? There's a lot, there's, I don't, I think that's kind of one of the big problems is, is in a lot of DFS content and things out there, things get simplified down to heuristics and rules of thumb that mostly exist because you need heuristics and rules of thumb to make a traditional optimizer build good lineups in the first place, right? Like the reason people are like, what stack sizes should I use is because most optimizers, when you sit down to build your lineups for a given slate, basically look at you and say, what stack types do you want? Oh, I'm sorry. I just realized my mic is all far away. Hopefully I wasn't too quiet. Uh, for the start of the show. Let's move that a little bit closer. Hopefully I'm not too loud now <laughs> um, if everything adjusts okay, but that should sound a little bit better. I forgot to pull my mic over, so it should sound a little bit better. Anyway, the whole reason why you get these kinds of like, this is a good stack, that's a bad stack mostly, is because traditional optimizers don't really know how to deal with the problem of correlation to begin with, right? Or if you're building by hand, right? There's not really any possible way that you could kind of like absorb all of the different correlation data, compare projections, correlations, ownership, everything accordingly, and end up with lineups that were just well correlated and well balanced against everything else. So I, I, I well, the reason I say that is because like on Saberson, you don't really have to make these kinds of decisions for the most part. Right? When you come in here uh, and, and build lineups, we'll take the size of the slate 
and the, and the actual slate context itself, right? What teams are playing on the slate? How are different players projected? What does their ownership look like? And what contest you are playing and build stack sizes accordingly, right? So you'll get the right mix of five threes, four fours, four threes, four twos, uh, five one 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 stacks, all of these different stack sizes. And for the most part, kind of answer this question in a way that is contextualized, right? Now, with that said, I would say in general, I play far more five threes than five one 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 ones. So I know it sounds like James, it sounds like you're kind of you're calling both of these stacks five threes. I think in general, I've always kind of referred to a five three, meaning five players from the same team and three players from the same team. And then I'll call the other kind of stack like a five one 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 or a naked five stack. I've heard it called as well, where you have the five stack and then three one-offs. So, I mean, in general, I've always preferred to play a five three. And I imagine here after this test build runs here, we'll see that as well, right? We'll probably see more five threes than, than the naked five stack. And the reason why is because you have more correlated players. Now, that's not to say you can never play a, a five stack, right? Just like a, 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 a five one 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 or whatever, right? So you can see here, we have 60% of our lineups in this particular set are five threes. We don't even have any just five stacks in our first set of 20 lineups, right? I think that's that's generally like a pretty common outcome. And again, it, it's because you you get that correlation of those remaining three pieces, right? Like this lineup here, it's it's Manea, it's Ashby, it's a uh, Cleveland stack, but instead of trying to pick, you know, three uncorrelated players and get all of those three players right, we get to bank on the Houston offense as a whole. And should the Houston offense as a whole succeed, it's likely or it's more likely that Altuve and Bregman and Alvarez all succeed together, right? Whereas, you know, just for the sake of it here, let's pull in like a couple of these, right? So if we look at just like the five stacks instead, right? So here's a good example, right? So now we have Manea, Ashby, we're stacking the Rays, but now instead of having a correlated remaining set of three players, we're hoping that Carson Kelly... Jordan Alvarez again, and in this case, Steven Piscotti all independently succeed, right? Which is just, it's a less probable outcome, right? We're trying to pick more things. So I would in general prefer to play five, three stacks and five stacks. But the broader question of like what stacking sizes are good in baseball DFS, I think is really, it's really, a that, that those are those are answered by heuristics and rules of thumb that you, you shouldn't really need to rely on using Sim in general. Right. Like if I, the better question is for this contest, I'm playing for tonight's slate, what stack sizes are appropriate. And I think SaberSim, based on the way that it takes into account correlations and projections and ownership and all of these different things together, will answer that question in a more dynamic and helpful way. So uh, the second point here that was asked, I was always of the opinion that three outfielders from the same team is minus EV and rostering them from separate teams is plus EV. Um, I, I, I don't think I would necessarily agree there. And I would be interested, James, to hear why you think that. Um, there, I, I, I can't think of any, okay. I can't think of any reason that's immediately jumping into my head here of why three outfielders from the same team would be negative EV and three outfielders from the separate teams is positive EV. I mean, at the very least, just taken purely in a vacuum, I would actually think probably the well, okay. So I would say, I would say probably the opposite is, is not necessarily true, but three outfielders from the same team, I think are probably more likely to all succeed together 
because we know those players are correlated than three separate outfielders from any given team, right? I wouldn't necessarily say this is an EV thing necessarily, right? Um, that one grouping of players is negative EV and one grouping of players is positive EV, right? Obviously, it's going to depend significantly about how they fit into the rest of the lineup as a whole, right? We can really only judge lineups for their expected value, not individual players and not combinations of players, not incomplete lineups. But I would even, even say that in a vacuum, all else being equal, three outfielders from the same team is probably better than three separate outfielders purely because of that correlation. Um, so I know the one thing that pops into my mind here um, is I know Blenderhead has talked a little bit about this before in the past where he essentially makes the claim that if a, especially if a team requires you, if you, if it requires you to use all three outfielder spots, right. To stack a team efficiently. Right. Maybe, you know, the Yankees are always a good example where are the Yankees even on the slate tonight? There might not be. Let's see if we can find another one. Right. Real quick. Just on a quick check. Uh, okay. So I'm looking for a team with three outfielders. Milwaukee might work pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Milwaukee's a good example. Okay. So if you were to stack Milwaukee tonight in like presumably the highest upside way, not not I'm not necessarily saying that this is, but if you were, I mean, the, four of the five first players in their batting order are all outfield spots, right? It's going to require a lot of outfielder positional equity in your lineup to stack the the Brewers for tonight, right? I, the the, the blenderhead argument, as I, as best as I can kind of paraphrase it or summarize it, is that because outfielder because there are so many outfielders right uh and because they are typically what typically good hitting positions you are sacrificing some potential lineup positions especially on a large slate or especially in a very large field contest where you have to get closer to the optimal because you know if you stack up if you have a lineup that has yelich and mccutcheon and renfro you're using all three outfielder spots which essentially blocks you from any of the ceiling potential from any of these other outfielders. And I think that's a decent intuitive argument. I would say, you know, the alternative is still trying to independently nail every single individual outfielder spot. And I don't think it necessarily makes a stack that much worse, the positional requirements of that stack. But I think even the better answer to that or the better, more practical response to that is that that is another thing that Saberson will kind of automatically parse for you, right? Because when we are building lineups, we're using buckets of game simulations for each game on the slate, real game outcomes, right? So if you are to get a lineup where you are stacking the Brewers and you are using up all three lineup spots for the Brewers, that lineup is saying that <clears throat> at least for a given subset of game simulations, given the entire rest of the outfielder lineup pool that exists, it is still most optimal for this particular lineup to use up those outfield spots for the Brewers, right? Be Basically, because we're using real actual game simulations, it kind of solves that problem, right? Um, it's 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 dealing with the problem of positional scarcity uh, in a in a very dynamic way every time it builds the lineup because those players are are pulling from real game outcomes and not from average projections, right? Actually, honestly, even if you were using average projections, it would probably still your system would probably still be accounting for this somewhat naturally, right? Um, so. But anyway, all of this to be said here, I would say in general, 
I would prefer to play all else being equal. I have no other information. I would prefer to play a lineup that is more correlated as opposed to less correlated, which is why I generally prefer to play a five, three stack than a five stack. Right. Um, with that said, I think those kinds of rules of thumbs and heuristics and things like that are at best, not necessary with Sabersim and at worst, maybe a little bit misleading in general in, in the DFS landscape of, of 2022. Um, and I think, answering those questions in a way that is more slate contextualized, more contest contextualized is a better way to go. And then second, with this other point here, I I would say in a vacuum, I don't think there's any reason to believe that playing three uncorrelated outfielders is better than three correlated outfielders. And I'd say it's probably all us being equal, the opposite. So. Okay, back to this NASCAR drama, drama here. Patrick said, uh, Hamlin and Kyle Busch finished first and second. Later on, they were both disqualified, rewarding Chase Elliott, the winner of... Wow. That's wild. That's crazy. I bet that was quite a swing. I have I have no real other comments. I didn't play any, any DFS um, or, or do any betting on NASCAR yesterday, but I imagine that was... Uh, I can only imagine the swings, especially in the large field stuff, what that was like, so... But uh, Jimmy said, can you run through your MLB research build process again and mainly what or what you mainly look for? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, let's let's kind of let's talk about what this really is first before we talk about what we look for here. Right. So these are the settings I use for my research build. Right. And what are we trying to essentially do with the research build or what am I trying to do with the research build? I am trying to. Actually, let's let's even start one step earlier, right? I am trying to essentially approximate what is the probability of a player ending up in the winning lineup of a contest I'm playing, right? That's that's essentially my goal. And the purpose for that is because I want to compare that to the ownership of that player to look for market inefficiencies, right? This isn't necessarily perfect, I would say. But I do think when you compare those two numbers together, it it gets weird, especially in sports where there is correlation, right? Correlation can kind of throw a little bit of a wrench into this. But essentially, I'm trying to compare, you know, how often, how often would this player end up in the winning lineup, right? Versus how often are they going to be in any given lineup? And if they would be, if they should, if they should be in the winning lineup more often than they're going to be in any given lineup, I want to play more lineups with that player. Right. And if they're going to be in, if they're going to be rostered in more lineups than their raw probability of winning a contest or being in a winning lineup for a contest, right, then I want to be, I want to build less lineups with that player. I want to be under on that particular player. Right. And ultimately, I would say the main goal of the research build, or at least part of the goal of the research build, is to, I would almost say, to kind of pull back the curtain on the ownership fade slider. Right. Looking for ownership inefficiencies is partially what the ownership fade slider does anyway. Right. It's basically saying, you know, okay, first let's look at the out the ranges of outcomes of each player on the slate. Right. And let's look, let's randomly bucket game simulations and, and sample that range of outcomes. And then let's build correlated lineups based on those outcomes. The ownership fade slider is kind of that that final check of, well, wait, are there is there an is there a lineup that we can build where we get less ownership with similar upside, right? So what I'm trying to do essentially with a research build is kind of pull back the curtain there and look at the the raw information myself and then make a decision on how I want to handle the slate, right? From an ownership standpoint. So the way we can do that 
And the way we can do that with SaberSim here is by basically looking at as small buckets of simulations as possible, single game simulations, right? So when we build lineups on these settings, 0, 0, 10, we are taking a single game simulation of every game on the slate, right? The average projection, you guys can see that here, this tooltip, Sim Precision 10, average projection of one sim per lineup. That means we're just taking a single game simulation of every game on the slate. We have turned correlation and ownership fade off. We've turned min salary to zero, right? So there's no salary requirements. We're basically just going to say for that single slate simulation of how the slate could play out, what is the optimal lineup you could build? The highest, maximum, highest scoring lineup possible. And I do that 1,500 times. And there's really two assumptions here that are coming into play. And it's important to recognize these assumptions because there are different sports and there are different contest types where these assumptions are better or worse, right? The first assumption is that when we simulate the slate 1500 times, that that is representative of the full possible range of outcomes, uh, or that the set of lineups that we end up with there is large enough that it, it represents the whole. And frankly, in baseball, there's so many different lineup combinations and so many different outcomes of the way that the slate can come out. I actually think that's somewhat of a weaker assumption in baseball. In a sport like MMA, there are far less lineup combinations that can simply be made. So I think that 1,500 lineups much better approximates the whole. But it's it's an assumption that we need to be aware of. And the second assumption is that when we take the the probability of a player ending up in the optimal lineup for a given slate outcome that those numbers ultimately approximate the probability of a player being in the winning lineup, right, for a contest, which is sometimes a stronger assumption. Sometimes that's a weaker assumption. I think it is a stronger assumption in larger field contests. I think it is a weaker assumption in smaller field contests, right? Um, but that is basically what we're doing. And that's kind of the, the how and the why of what a research build is. And now when we run this, and maybe I probably should have been running this already because now it's going to have to build these 1,500 lineups. I'll talk about basically what I'm looking for. And in a nutshell, it is, again, inefficiencies between the probability of a player showing up in this set of lineups versus the projected ownership for that particular player. Um, but it's, uh, it's not an exact science. And I'll talk about here, as soon as this build finishes, a little bit more about kind of why that is. So... But give this a second here. I want to, to make sure I let this build actually properly run here, and then we can start looking at it before I start diving in. So in the meantime, Patrick says, do you have any friends in the Fantasy Golf World Championship contest? I know there was a big fuss about it over the weekend. Uh, I'm not sure. I might. Maybe I have to ask around. Um, I don't know if Giant Squid had any tickets. He might have. I'll have to check. I definitely know some of our our uh, some of the guys over at uh, Run Pure did. Um, Big T advanced, I think, three of his four seats. So, but okay, let's talk about this research build. So, let's change. I just like to be able to see the lineup. So we'll change a couple things here, right? Okay. So now here's what we have, right? So we have this number is essentially approximating the player's probability of being in the optimal, and this number is how many lineups are going to have that player in it in a you know, probably a large field GPP, right? And I typically go here, I go by pitcher, I go pitcher, and then I go, then I look at hitters, right? And the reason I said you kind of, you can't really just look at this in a vacuum is because you kind of have to take into account all of these, these numbers together, right? In other words, uh, it, it's not necessarily just enough to say, 
that you can just look at the leverage column and just say, okay, Aaron Ashby is a fade, right? Because it also matters. The raw probability of him being in the winning lineup is also important, right? So, I mean, we'll just start here, right? He has a 20, uh, Saber Sim says that he essentially has a one in five chance, a 20% chance of being in the optimal lineup, right? And the field is rostering him as if he has a, you know, roughly a one in three percent chance of being in the optimal lineup, right? A 31.42% chance according to, you know, that's a two decimal places is pretty precise there, but that's, that's our ownership projection, right? And this is kind of a general trend that you will see in basically every DFS sport is that the players whose probability of success is the highest are often slightly overowned relative to that probability of success by this metric, right? This is pretty common. Same thing with Manea, right? Very similar numbers here. And basically what you are getting when you roster those players is some sense of security, right? But you have to typically pay more in the form of ownership to, to roster them, right? Whereas you can fade these players, right? But then you have to take chances and you could say, I'm going to fade some of these players and I'm going to play um, Adrian Sampson instead, who has half the probability of uh Half, what half the probability of being in the optimal lineup than Aaron Ashby, but he has one sixth the ownership projection, right? But you have to be aware that you are basically cutting your raw probability of success there in half by doing so, right? So ultimately, what I'm what I'm basically looking at is I'm looking at this number and looking if this number is negative and very negative, I'm typically looking at players that I will probably either fade or be under the field on. And I also like to look at players who are positively leveraged, right? Which are going to be players that I want to specifically target and, or maybe be well over the field on, right? And I will basically just kind of go through and take notes as I'm looking through this. So let's literally just do this here. Um, and let's see. Um, I wanted to, let's, okay, one sec. Let me try this. I'm going to pull up like a document here. Uh, and I'll kind of just show you kind of some of the notes that I might make here. So okay. So let's pull this back up here. Okay. And one of the things that I always like to mention with this here is especially if you were if you're interested in like this kind of strategy, this seems like something that this first of all, I should even start by saying this. This isn't something that by any means everybody that uses SaberSim has to do, right? This is something that you know I've kind of started to do has become a part of my process because it feels like something that I'm kind of good at, basically. Like I, I, I even talked about this on Friday that one of the edges that I feel like I'm pretty consistently good at across a wide variety of sports is given the projections and given the ownership projections arriving at what the optimal kind of game theory strategy is for that particular slate is a, is a strength of mine. Right. And it's something that I think is, is good. I think I'm good at. So I like to do it here. Uh, I actually here will typically at this point, most of the time when I run these research builds, I will pull these lineups down into Microsoft Excel and basically analyze every act, every individual player in the pool and make an adjustment or kind of have a stance on every single individual player on the pool. But if you are just starting out with this, by no means do you need to do that. I would say you're better off looking for a few different particular edges that allow you to become opinionated about the slate, right? A few different things that you're looking at. Um, so let's start. Let's start by looking at the pitchers here. So, right. So we might be looking at pitchers and let's go through here. Whoops. Oh no. What happened? 
Okay. So we're looking at our pitchers here, right? So to me, right off the bat, this doesn't look like a very good pitching slate, right? Uh, you have Ashby and Manea both projecting pretty well in good matchups here. But overall, there's not there's no real aces on this slate, right? And you'll come to see a little bit more of what an ace looks like in a research build. But you'll, you know, if Garrett Cole was on this slate, his exposure, his probability of being the optimal lineup might be 35 or 40%, right? The overall best prob- pitcher being overall in the the, the top lineup, uh, having a 20% probability to do so is, is pretty low, right? This isn't a great looking pitching slate. And most of the top guys are getting basically what looks like undeserved ownership to me, right? Like Ashby is 11% over-owned. Manea is 16% over-owned, right? He's almost double his, his probability of success. Then even Max Freed doesn't look great. Zach Granke doesn't look that great, right? We get down to Zach Gon- or sorry, uh, Tony Gonsolin here, who is the per- first basically efficiently owned pitcher here. Uh, but he's 10K and it's it's Tony Gonsolin, right? I'm not, I'm not like that excited about any of these pitchers here, right? The first pitcher that we even have like any kind of significant positive leverage on is Adrian Sampson and, and maybe Tyler Gilbert and like Pavetta. Like we start getting down here to these some of these other positively leveraged pitchers. The pitching just to me just looks like totally gross here, right? So the way I might interpret this here is basically say that I'm going to, I'm going to be cautious with Ashby uh, Manea, actually here, let's do it like this. Manea, yeah, Manea, uh, Freed and Granky and be cautious. Basically I'm saying probably be like maybe even with the field at most, maybe a little bit under the field and kind of just hope that I end up with the, the right two guys in my lineups, but I'm not very excited about any of these pitchers here. And it seems like the field is just gravitating towards pitchers that are like maybe just in a slightly better spot um, than, than others here. Right. So, um, and then we can go over and look at the hitters here. Right. And take a look here. Okay. So where is, where's hitting chalk going to go? What is, what does the hitting hitting look like overall? Right. So let's look at the most negatively leveraged stacks. Right. And the most lever- negatively leveraged hitters, right? And I kind of try to look here for a general trend of teams, right? So you can see here, you know, one that immediately kind of jumps out is Dodgers, right? Looks to be like there's kind of some consistency that Dodgers might be a little bit over-owned here. Um, the Alvarez kind of jumps out here a little bit. I also do think that we're just a little bit high on his overall projection at the moment. Like he's he's three points higher than the very next projected hitter. That just seems a little bit higher to high to me. So I actually think this number and this number are going to come in a little bit lower. So I'm not super worried there. Um, I also for hitters, I typically try to, instead of trying to pick individual one-offs out here, I try to look at, I try to look to see if I can identify stacks within the, the noise here. Um, and the one that really jumps out to me is the Dodgers, right? That might be a team that, Maybe I'm a little bit careful with here tonight. Um, doesn't seem like there's actually a ton of inefficient ownership on the hitting side, really. Um, the Dodgers jump out a little bit. Maybe some of these Cleveland bats, maybe some of these Houston bats, but nothing like really jumping out here. On a slate where there's maybe like a, a, Wrig- a Wrigley Field win game or a Coors Field game uh, or something like that where chalk is really condensed, you'll get situations here where this, these can be much higher. But it doesn't really seem like we have that here tonight. 
Um, the other situation I'll look for is if there's any like positive leverage here. Is there any, are there any bats that maybe just look, they're going to get really underowned by the field. And one that jumps out is Colorado. And that actually checks out with our intuition, right? If Ashby is going to be the, one of the chalkiest pitchers and is a very negatively leveraged pitcher, it does make sense that the Rockies on the other side might be underappreciated as a stack, right? Now, any of these given Rockies bats only have a four, four or less percent chance of success anyway. So I'm not going to go crazy here, but for the hitters, right? Let's see. And stacks. I'm going to, um, I'm probably going to fade Dodgers, right? And I like the idea of getting exposure to Colorado stacks, right? And you could go at this for as long as you want, right? I, the ways that I typically like to do this is I like to just, uh, there's a couple different things. I'll either go down the list sorting by positive leverage or negative leverage to look at the best overall possible plays, or I'll just sort by exposure, which in this case is actually sorting by probability of that play paying off, right? The raw probability of that player being a good play and look, looking at it this way, right? Like another thing that you can kind of do here is what, what are the, what are the most likely players to succeed at a given position, either, either at the hitter at what are the most likely hitters or pitchers independently to succeed that have a positive leverage, right? What are the first kind of teams and names that you see sticking out here, right? San Francisco, Atlanta, Texas here, right? These three all positively leveraged, all look under-owned. Um, and we can kind of see if we can see a little bit of a trend here. And sometimes you might identify a little bit of a sneaky, sneaky stack this way as well, um, where, you know, Atlanta actually kind of seems a little bit interesting here. Um, as does San Francisco here, where you're kind of consistently seeing some of these guys that look like they have efficient or slight positive ownership here um, and a good overall raw probability of, of paying off, right? So then what do you do with this? This is a way of becoming opinionated about the slate, right? So if you, you know, if you often, if you use SaberSim and, you know, slate after slate, you're thinking, well, okay, I get it. I get what SaberSim does. I get what it automates for me. I get the value of it, but then I don't know what to do to do beyond adjusting my exposure somewhat randomly, right? I get questions from people all the time that are like, hey, I'm using SaberSim. I get it, but like, what, what do I do? This is a way of, of researching the slate for yourself and becoming opinionated about the slate. So I would typically basically recommend taking your notes, right? You might have two things here. You might have 20 things here, whatever you want to do, right? And then build your lineups and then use it to make decisions or use it to, uh, you know, make changes to your exposures, make some strategic decisions. Um, so we'll let this build here. And in this case, honestly, for tonight's slate, like it's not, it's not a slate where things are like jumping off the board in the research build to me, right? Like it seems like Dodgers might be a little bit overowned. I like the idea of probably being pretty under, under on Ashby and Manea and maybe getting some direct leverage against Ashby in particular with Colorado stacks, but it wasn't, it's, it wasn't a slate where like a lot was jumping off, which that's fine to me. You know, maybe it means it's a slate where I'm not making as many changes here, but we'll let this load here and we'll make a couple adjustments here in just a moment. Okay. So now we have our lineups. So now let's go here. Right. And I typically, when I do this, I typically start with like the smallest 
the smallest version of the adjustment, right? So like, instead of just unclicking Ashby's name, right? I'm going to say like, what, let's, let's get even with the field on Ashby and kind of see where we go from there. And the same thing with Manea, right? Let's get even with the field on Manea. Uh, it was Ashby, Manea, Granke, and uh, Max Freed, right? So I'll go in here and I'll just set all these to make sure, right? And in this case, it has me getting kind of a lot of exposure to Tony Gonsolin, which Again, it, this is a tricky one because I actually think Tony Gonsolin is not a very good real life pitcher. And I've basically been waiting all season for him inevitably to regress back to like what has been his historical career average. But based on the research build tonight, uh, it does actually look like he is at the very least the highest probability pitcher to the, the pitcher most likely to be successful tonight that has uh, appropriate ownership. Right. Uh, so. I'm fine being a little bit over the field there. And then we kind of spread out the rest of the way, right? That's kind of what I was mentioning when I was looking at the research build, right? Like why not take, you know, 15% shot at Tyler Gilbert or, uh, you know, getting 2X the field with 10% of our lineups with Adrian Sampson, right? The pitching sucks tonight. And then we can come over here and look at our teams, right? Uh, and we're already fading the Dodgers, right? We're not even getting to any Dodgers here, at least not in our stacks. And that kind of makes sense because again, ownership fade is already on, right? Some of these decisions are already kind of being automated for you. Um, but Cleveland was a team here that was kind of showing up as a little bit, maybe also a little bit inefficiently owned. So maybe, maybe we back this off a little bit here. Um, maybe we do like max 30% Cleveland stacks, right? We spread out a little bit more. We get to, to some teams that maybe have a little bit more positive leverage. And I want to see if I can just get to just a little bit of Colorado, right? I'm not going to go overboard with it here, but I want to just see 10% just taking a shot on a couple lineups, right? If I'm already going to be under on Ashby, maybe I just take a couple shots on, you know, a lineup like this, right? I, I kind of like this, right? We have, it, it happens to be one of our Manea lineups, happens to be one of our Freed lineups. It happens to be a Cleveland lineup, but this is just like super leverage against Ashby here. Even two Rockies bats that are going to be like microscopically unowned. I, I, they're by far going to be the lowest owned bats on the slate, I think. Um, Detroit and Colorado. So, uh, and then there, there we go, right? Um, then I would do other things, obviously here, I would probably take a look at my hitting exposures. Um, and in 20 lineups, 40% max exposure to my, my most popular hitters fine with me. Um, but I would want to make sure that, you know, I always typically am a little bit cautious if I see a, a hitter that, you know, if I have 80% exposure to any given hitter in my, in a 20 lineup build or something like that, I typically want to back that off a little bit. Um, but that's what I would do. So. And I think, again, I think the best the, the best use case for this, this kind of version of the research build, this, this example where you're, you're running the research build, maybe taking a few notes, writing down a couple things, right? I think this is a really good fit for somebody that is unsure of what to do, right? If you are building lineups with Sabersim and you get the fundamentals of what's going on behind the scenes, and maybe you've experimented a little bit with adjusting your exposures to manage some risk and things like that. But from there, then what else, right? How do I make strategic decisions about the slate? I think it can be a really powerful tool. So anyway, good question. Let's keep it going here. David said, there's a number of weather games today in the MLB. How would you handle it? Uh, yeah, let's go take a look. Let's go check um, Kevin Roth's dashboard and kind of see what the situation is here. Uh, it seems like there's definitely some 
some potential here. I mean, the big thing I would be doing, first of all, um, let me go ahead and the big thing I would be doing, can you guys see that? Okay. Is just keeping an eye on this throughout the day, right? Weather changes throughout, throughout the day a lot. Uh, it could be, you know, pretty likely here that these games all get better throughout the day. It's also possible that these games get much worse, right? Um, for me here, it's going to depend a lot on how things are looking at, at lock. Um, these two games. So I think this is when you have these games that are like yellow, yellow, orange, where it's kind of tricky. I think you need to just read what, what Kevin Roth is actually saying and, and kind of see what, what the actual weather is. Uh, and both Baltimore and Philly kind of seem more like it's likely to late start and then play right where, so I'm not, I'm not really worried about it here. This game does actually potentially have a little bit more of a concern here uh, where a delay, right? He's talking about a delay, not a postponement, would mostly affect starting pitchers, right? If a game delays, you put your starting pitchers at risk because suddenly they are, uh, you know, if a game delays for an hour, they, and the, in the third inning, they might be done, right? They can't, pitchers can't get cold and then warm back up again that easily. So um, in that particular case, I might take a look at the starting pitchers. Uh, in this case, not very excited to play Pavetta or Plesak. In, in fact, Red Sox bats and Guardians bats were both stacks I was getting to in the build just a minute ago. Um, I might just uncheck them. Um, I might I might just uncheck them if I'm playing 20 or so lineups. If I'm playing 150 lineups, I might still be willing to take a couple shots at them, but it would definitely be something where I would want to check my exposure and make sure I wasn't you know, 40% Pavetta or something like that in a game where there's some significant risk of a delay suddenly starts to feel a little bit risky. Um, but it doesn't seem like we have a ton of postponement risks tonight. So again, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Um, I would probably just, just see how things change throughout the day. Um, and then look to see, you know, what is the actual risk here? Is it a delay risk? In which case I'm more concerned about my starting pitchers. If there's a postponement risk, maybe I'm fading the game completely. Uh, in general though, in a, in a very general sense with weather in baseball, I would, I would lean on the side of uh, of being conservative, right? If you have concerns about weather at all, right? I typically would just make the appropriate adjustments, either, you know, potentially fading the starting pitchers or potentially fading the game. Because ultimately, right, we just saw, actually, you know what? Even actually a better, a better way of saying this would be use your research build to help guide you to that decision, right? Maybe it's lock and... These two games have cleared up. This game has, this game's like, yeah, it's a decent chance of being delayed. And, you know, instead of agonizing over, God, wow, should I keep Plesak and Pavetta in my pool or should I just X them out, right? You can come back to the research build once it uh, has a second to, to load back up and, and look, here, let me try a refresh here, and look and see what is the actual raw probability of either or both of those pitchers being in the optimal lineup and let that guide to your decision of what to do. And I think it happens with stacks all the time, right? Like there might be, you know, there's rain in Coors, right? And the some team, I don't know, you've got the the Padres in town, right? And everybody wants to play Padres, but it's raining and there's a big risk of postponement, right? Well, if you actually run your research build, you'll probably see that, you know, Padre stacks in general have like a 10% chance of being in the optimal lineup. And it makes it a lot easier to fade looking at it that way, Right. Like, you know, maybe let's say, for example, let's say there was rain in, in uh, LA tonight, right? Um, which doesn't really happen that often, I guess. Maybe not a good example. Uh, but let's say there's some reason that the Dodgers game has some weather risk, right? Um, so 
I don't know. Again, I know not a great example there, but let's just say it does, right? And you're like, wow, man, the Dodgers are, are the best stack tonight. Um, they're they're up against a terrible pitcher. They're projected for six runs. Like, how do I fade the Dodgers? Well, this is how you fade the Dodgers, right? By recognizing that their their raw probability of being the winning stack is really only, you know, about 10%, right? It makes it a lot easier to fade them. So anyway, all that to say, uh, for today, I would just keep an eye on things throughout the day, right? Especially close to lock. Um, understand, like, read what is actually written here and understand the the risk or, or lack thereof of, of each game. Um, and then adjust accordingly and use your research build to help guide you to make some of those decisions um, and play conservatively. So, um, Patrick said an invasion of honeybees would be a great example for LA. Yeah, uh, probably not rain, but uh, I don't know, maybe heat, unfortunately. So, um, all right, cool. Let's get caught up here. Uh, Patrick says, does a Brave stack correlation take a hit with Adam Duvall being out for the season? I mean, I think like it probably negatively affects the team somewhat. I don't really know what, like, I don't know really know how good Duvall has been this year or like what his, his wins against a replacement player are. Um, so I would assume that it somewhat negatively affects the the Braves like slightly, maybe by like a win or so. I don't think it's like a concern on a night to night basis for DFS really. Um, so it, de it definitely doesn't affect, I mean, it definitely doesn't affect the correlation. It might slightly affect the, the upside, but I mean, this is still like an elite hitting team, right? Like, I don't know. You could stay. I mean, one of the best things about the brave stacks is you can virtually stack anybody one through nine and feel pretty good about it. And I think you still can even without Duval in there. So um, 12 pack says it's interesting to me that in research builds, the highest on pitchers come up negatively leveraged pretty much all the time, regardless of site differences. It's not just Saverson. I've seen the same thing on other sites. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was talking about. That is just a general trend that you will see in virtually every sport is the, the primary negative leverage ownership inefficiency that you get is the, at this point in DFS, the field identifies the best plays pretty well, right? We are far past that, right? At one point, you know, three, four years ago, there was a huge edge in DFS of just identifying the best plays, right? Projections were not something that were readily available. But at this point, like people know who are the best projected plays, even by just looking at Vegas totals gives you a pretty good idea of like, that team's a good play, that team's not so much, or pitchers, vice, like whatever, right? The inefficiency, the market inefficiency that you most commonly see now is an over an overplaying of those best plays, right? Like, yes, Aaron Ashby is, or Sean Manea, take your pick, are the probably the best two pitchers on the slate here tonight, right? More or less. I mean, maybe, again, it's a weird slate. Like, maybe you can make a strong argument in favor of, like, Max Freed or something like that, right? But all these guys pretty close together, right? Well, nobody is denying that. What, what you're finding in the research build is that the field is overplaying that particular player, at least in theory, right? If those numbers are are correct. Now you can say, Oh, okay, great. I'm going to fade. I'm going to easily fade, right? Like done. But you, then you have to end up on two other pitchers that have a lower raw probability of success, right? You're taking, you're, you're picking a player whose raw probability of winning is lower to basically be more profitable when that outcome takes place, right? If you play, if you play Aaron Ashby and, or if you play Sean Manea tonight, I think that's actually the better example. 
right? Like, sure, you're playing a player that, you know, maybe has the highest overall probability of success. But when you're right, you then are sharing, you then are basically trying to beat out 35% of the rest of the field to, to get there, to, to from there to have the, the best possible lineup around Manea. Whereas, you know, maybe if you play Tony Gonsolin, right? Player who has a very similar raw expectation of success, slightly lower, a couple percentage points lower, you're only beating out 14% of the remainder of the field when you are right about that. That's that's basically the 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 nuts of the the research build idea, or the way I kind of think about it. So but and it's true of all sports. You'll see the same thing if you want a research build for golf, for example. It's not as if the the ownership inefficiency is not some like seventy two hundred dollar golfer who like you know doesn't even have a very good chance to make the cut and the field is just blindly rostering that guy at twenty percent right that would be the easiest fate of your life no the inefficient ownership like last week right the the inefficient ownership is on um, you know Tony Finau is a good example right he won the whole tournament. Right. In my research builds, he was coming up as one of the most likely to be optimal golfers in the field and also one of the most likely to be overowned golfers in the field. Right. Then that checks out. That makes sense. Most likely golfer to win the tournament and also most overowned. That 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 is very similar. That happens a lot. So same thing in MMA, right? MMA is another good example. You run your research build in MMA. What is typically what is the most overowned? player in MMA or fighter in MMA on most particular slates, it is generally the most slightly underpriced underdog on the card is almost always the most overowned in your research build, right? Because you eventually, I mean, to build a MMA lineup and stay under the salary cap, you basically have to play underdogs. You have to have some dogs in your lineup, right? Traditional optimizers, people building by hand, what are they going to do when they build their lineup? They're going to pick their favorite favorites. They're going to get all the favorites in there, all the players that project really well. And that traditional optimizer, when you have 7,500 or 8,000 8, salary left over, is going to pick the, the, the I don't know, 49% chance dog that is, you know, a little bit slightly underpriced. So anyway, um, very, very common trend. But uh Let's see. Let's keep it going here. Jimmy said that was very informative. I was looking at things all wrong. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And happy to happy to answer any other questions about it as well. I, I talk about research builds a lot here on this stream. Um, I get very excited talking about these research builds, but I think I also have a tendency to like overcomplicate them somewhat um, or at least kind of, I don't know. So if there's any other questions here about that strategy, um, Definitely feel free to fire away. And the one thing I want to reemphasize here as well is that that is by no means a necessary part of the process. I think, you know, I do the show every single day, right? I, I am the host of Office Hours and I do a research build in my process every single day. But I do think at times I've led people to believe that watch the show every day, that that is the way that you use Saversim. And that's not necessarily true, right? By any means. But I do think it is a very good way for, for people that otherwise don't necessarily know what to do to get be, to become opinionated about a slate. Um, you know, if you are, if you're going and watching live before lock shows that other sites do, or reading leverage articles or uh, digging into advanced stats or looking at, you know, recent pitcher velocity or something like that, like all of these other things that you could potentially be looking at and, and then becoming opinionated about the slate, 
Like you are probably adding value in your own unique way to the process. This is just my unique way that I've kind of figured out for myself. And I think it's a good way that I can share for those that maybe are looking for what, what that might look like for them. So, but. Um, Rogue says front end UI says last completed at eight. It seems like that probably got fixed at some point during the stream here. This says last updated 1238 here, which was 10 minutes ago. So, um, sometimes, you know, some of these early in the day Sims can be a little bit out of sync with the app, but should, should always be rectified pretty fast. So, uh, retro said, I have a bankroll of 5k after a first play win. What percent of my bankroll would you suggest to go back in the next day? I play daily. Uh, Interesting questions. Two ways to look at this. So actually, so honestly, this is just like a, this is just a Jordan thing. This is just something I do. I always ease up when I have a big win in, in terms of increasing my bankroll, right? Our general, I would say our general bankroll recommendations are two and a half to 5% of your bankroll for a given slate, basically, um, or a set of correlated slates. So if you play like multiple baseball slates a day, two and a half to 5% total. If you only play the main slate, two and a half percent to 5% total. But with that said, if you were, if you had a $500 bankroll and now you have a $5,000 bankroll, that is a huge jump, right? That like feels like a huge jump. Um, and I've always recommended people when that happens, if you have like a, if you have an order of magnitude change in the size of your bankroll, ease into that, right? There's no reason you need to go and jump, make the jump from playing like $50 to $500 all in one day or something like that. Or I guess in the case of this, the example I just gave, it would be what? $25 to $250, right? No, no, by no means do you need to make that jump all in one day just because those are the rules, right? Adjust your bankroll after a win accordingly uh, in a way that feels comfortable to you. If you ever, if you are really sweating a slate ever, like as soon as the slate locks, you're sweating, that means you played too much. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you played too much based on the rules. That could just mean that you played too much for you at that particular moment. So, um, but longer term are in general, I think our recommendations uh, for, for bankroll are two and a half percent to 5% based on your edge and your risk tolerance in the sport, right? Your risk of ruin increases as you increase the size of your bankroll or in increase your daily wager percentage of your bankroll, right? That's just a fact, but you also have to be in to win. Right. So your, your upside potentially increases as well, but two and a half to 5% is our general threshold. So. Um, okay. Jeremy said for a baseball showdown, you see hundred percent on one team. Is that a red flag that you need to adjust exposures or not necessarily? I would say not necessarily, right. Just cause I mean, there's only, there's only two teams, right? So like my, there's only two teams. There's a far smaller player pool and you're basically trying to, most of the time, especially if you're playing the bigger GPPs, you're trying to land on the optimal or very close to the optimal. Um, so I am, I'm not, if I'm typically not concerned about managing my risk when I'm playing baseball showdown, right? Like baseball showdown is not the contest for you. If, if risk management is a big part of the way that, that you're trying to prioritize your exposures, right? Like it, because there's there's just far fewer players in the pool. What I'm doing with my exposures in general, like what would be a bigger red flag is if I was 100% on one team in a baseball showdown that I also thought the field was going to ex like very excessively be exposed to, right? Like I probably would not play 100% Dodger stacks in this in in the night showdown tonight, right? Because that's what I think that's that's what I think everybody's going to do, right? 
I might as well take shots on lineups that are slightly more overweight to Washington or at least balance builds as opposed to just jamming in Dodger stacks with the other 60% of lineups in a contest that are going to do the exact same thing. So, but that's more of a duplication and a game theory stance than it is a risk tolerance stance. So. Um, okay. Um, Patrick said, I scored 141 on the 121 battery and was not able to min cash on Friday um, due to the Jays 28 burger. I had a ton of Jays stacks uh, on Friday and still just had an average night. It was I couldn't get the right other pieces altogether in, in the rest of the lineup to really make anything happen. Um, I also didn't have a lot of Jensen, which I think was like so important. So I had a lot. So I actually had a lot of Cubs and Jays stacks, but I had so much Contreras that I couldn't get to any Jensen. And then I couldn't get those top 1% outcomes, which is like a weird thing because Contreras also had a ceiling outcome, but you needed Jensen's like whatever. I he scored like 65 on FanDuel. So it was a weird positional thing there where most of the time when I had a Cubs stack who scored also scored 15 runs, I think I had Contreras, which in general, I would say I liked, but on this particular slate, it kind of messed me up. So Kind of a weird, weird thing there. Uh, Jimmy said, your build notes, your four pitchers to be cautious of is an alternative way to make a group of those four and say to maybe only use one of them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's fine. Um, and honestly, I've talked a little bit before here, like talked last week that I, I haven't, act, like I, one thing I haven't really looked at so much with my research builds and one one way I want, kind of want to go or a direction I want to go in is um, is looking more at combinations of players like that, Right. So like if you have if you have two players who are uh underowned, right? Or if you have two players that are overowned, it, it is actually uh greater than the sum of those two negative leverages worse to play those two players together, right? Like these actually compound, right? So like if Ashby and Manea are both the the in theory the most overowned pitchers on the slate, it is actually like disproportionately or greater than the the sum of these two negative leverages bad to play them together right because you are basically like when you're you th- if you think about probabilities right you need both of those players to hit their optimals so it's actually like multiplicatively bad to play those players together uh but i haven't really gone down the route of really looking at like um I haven't really gone down the route too much of like looking at combinations of players like that and making adjustments like that on my, in my particular process, but I think that's perfectly fine. Right. So I think, yeah, is the way you would do that for those that are maybe unaware would be to come in here and to basically say uh, these four names, max one. Right. And I think that could actually be a really clever way of doing this too. And I'm going to actually run this build because I want to see what it does. Because then what you're going to do is basically you're going to say, like, you're going to force Saberson to make some decisions about what the best pitcher is. And for me, in my process, I would probably end up overweight on or underweight, sorry, on all four of those guys. But maybe with this approach, you would end up massively overweight on one, right? Maybe you lock Ashby in and fully fade all three of the others, right? I, I don't know. Um, and I don't necessarily know what is better either, but I think this is a very, I think this is a perfectly fine answer to this. And I would actually even generalize this further and say, like, just as you're like, if, if I just built the research build 
and then handed you that build and said, come to your own conclusions about this, you would probably have identified different things than I would have. We might have had some things in common. We probably would have had some things in different. Just in the, in the same way that that's true, your what you choose to do with that information can vary as well, right? You may prefer to lean a little bit more on editing projections or exposures or setting rules or doing this or that to, to determine how you want to handle your research build, right? And you can see actually in this case, that is kind of what we got, right? Where we're like over the field on Ashby. Um, and then we kind of get to every other pitcher here and basically fully fade, freed, and Manea almost completely. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then Guy Will Gamble said, with the research build, it seems to me to look for the biggest potential impacts first and leverage making those adjustments. Um, yeah, I I think, yes, that I, I would agree, right? And I would also add on to that is look, look for reasons to fade players rather than play them. Right, because when you're fading, you're basically saying all other outcomes but this one. Right, when you fade Ashby, eighty percent of the probability is on your side because his probability of individual success is only twenty percent. But if you're playing a player, right, that's why I was so cautious with those Rocky stacks when I was walking through this earlier. Right, because yes, the Rockies are slightly underowned, but when you play them, you are banking on an outcome. You are banking on a specific outcome that only has a five percent chance to pay off, or a four percent chance to pay off, or whatever it is. Right. So I would say you can look for good plays. You can look for under-owned opportunities when your research build, but I would say lean more on figuring out who not to play or who to cap exposure on or to who to be cautious about as opposed to looking for players to to play. So um and Jimmy had said uh our exposure is more beneficial. Um, I would say the one thing, okay. So the one thing that you get out of editing more on exposures here is that when we come, like, if we come back to this build, right, which was the first one we built after the research build, we didn't touch anything here to do this, right? We use default projections. We use default settings. Everything was, everything was default, right? What's nice about that is that this, this pool of 500 lineups is essentially unopinionated, right? It is, these are 500 good lineups right out of the gate. Our, our opinion on the slate is expressed in which 20 we choose of that pool of 500. But if you start opinionating SaberSim, not to say that's a bad thing, right? I make adjustments to projections and set stacking rules and things like that all the time. But once you start to opinionate SaberSim by doing those things, you're having a bigger impact on, on the result, right? So if you are unsure, or especially if you are, are, are maybe just learning this, the one thing that's nice about editing exposures instead is that you can, you take up from, you, you are pulling from a pool of lineups that you know are good, right? You can potentially make a, enough adjustments to build settings or projections or things like that before the build runs that eventually maybe your lineup, your pool in the post-build process is not as good. Or maybe there's a lot of lineups that are just straight up bad in there because the adjustments you made were bad, right? That's, that's the potential risk there. So I wouldn't say one's like better in general, um, but there is sometimes a little bit more risk about making more adjustments up front. So uh, this is a really good point from Guy Will Gamble as well. Um, he said, also with bankroll jumps, it makes sense to consider making leaps in sports independently. I had one of those bankroll jumps in NBA and I burned a lot of it playing NBA where I wasn't as skilled at the game. Yeah, I would I would say um, 
I, I would say you should definitely at least have an understanding of your your relative skill level in each sport, right? Um, because it's going to be a little bit different for everybody. Like for me, if I like during uh during fall when NFL and basketball are both on. I know I'm good at both of those sports. I've been playing both of those sports for a long time. If I win an NFL, I will gladly use that money in the very next night or maybe the same night, potentially sometimes in the NBA slate, right? Because I've played both of those sports for years. I know that I'm successful in those. Uh, some of these newer sports that I've been experimenting with this year, NASCAR, Formula One, tennis recently, right? Like I I don't have as much of a history with those sports to know that I'm 100% confident. So if I like binked baseball tonight, and was building for, I don't know if all of a sudden I'm going to be maxing out the, the flagship tennis contest tomorrow or something like that. Um, just cause it's, I think it's a good point to, to have an understanding of your skill level in the sport. So um, so Don asks a really good question here. What criteria do you use to actually accurately assess your edge in DFS? Uh, and this is a legitimate challenge. This is a, a difficult challenge. Um, I think, you know, in particular, because there is so much variance in the results that it takes, it would take an incredibly long time to use something as simple as just profit or ROI before you could have a sample size large enough to actually feel confident that that number was predictive of your future success, right? It would take many, 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 many seasons. Um, the, what I think is probably without being able to run contest simulations and basically artificially recreate that sample size by running Sims, I think probably the best tool at most people's disposal to, to calculate your edge in a given sport is your finishing percentiles, right? So if you think about, you know, if you played a hundred lineups a night over the course of a season and you would, you were a perfectly average player, your expectation would be that you would approach over the long term. 1% of your lineups would finish in the top 1% of the contest and another 1% of your lineups would finish between the top 1% and the top 2% and slow so on. And you would like basically have a perfectly flat percentage of percentiles of lineups where you're your lineups basically finished in exactly the probability that they would expect be expected to do on average, right? Well, a good player is going to disproportionately outpace their probability of success in the higher percentiles, right? I think a good, a decent rule of thumb is, and, and it depends a lot on the contest you are playing and how many lineups you are playing, but assuming that you are playing a large number of unique lineups per night in line with our profit plan, for example, I think if you can outpace your top 1% equity by half of a percentage, you're probably a pretty skilled player. So basically what I'm saying is if your top 1% equity in a contest over a long term is, you know, honestly anywhere from 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 up to like 2%-ish, you're probably you you would probably profitable over the long term. Now that's not a perfect calculation. There's a lot of flaws with that, but I think that's probably the best overall baseline without the ability to simulate your own contests that you can kind of approximate that. Um, you know, there's, again, there's a lot of things with that, that first of all, the, the more lineups you play, right. Um, and the, the larger fields you are playing, um, 
I think you are going to find that that number comes down a little bit, right? Like I, I know I've heard, um, on other DFS podcasts and things, people talking about this exact same thing. Like that number might be 2% or 3%, even if you primarily play like small field, single entry GPPs or something like that. Whereas if you're a 150 maxer, that number might be 1.3, 1.4, 1.5. Um, just because of the, the the kind of nature of those contests. But I think that's probably the best tool at your disposal for most sports without, if you're like me, basically, and you can't, like, I can't, I love talking to Eric uh, about his contest simulations and and uh, and Matt and Elijah on, on all the Behind the Sims podcasts and things like that that we've been doing, but um, I don't know how to run contest simulations uh, of my contests. So to determine if I have an edge in a sport like tennis, which I've just started playing in the past month, I'm kind of, first of all, I'm playing a very, very, very small portion of my bankroll. And I'm studying that top 1% equity to see, hey, am I am I disproportionately outperforming my, my top expectation? So, and I think that's the best tool out there. Um, Roto Tracker is probably the best DFS product to help you do that on the market. So... Um, if you're interested in that, I would check out Roto Tracker. All right. Um, okay. So I, I had gotten a little distracted talking, um, mostly focusing on the YouTube chat here. There were a couple questions in Slack I had missed. Uh, work hard. 247 had asked about the weather. Um, I did cover that quite a bit. Let's see if this is updated at all. Again, and I think I probably should have just said this from the beginning. Like, to be totally like to be totally honest, I'm not super worried about weather tonight. Um, I would say basically maybe just keep an eye out for delay risk in Boston, um, and you know potentially be careful with like your Pavetta and Plesac exposure if it looks like it could delay. But it, I, I don't actually think there's going to be too much weather issues at least as the way it's projected right now. Now this could get a lot worse, and then then we have to adjust. Um, but I'm not not super worried. So, um, and then. DT had asked as well. Uh, for the 20 or 100 player contest on FanDuel, single entry, what is the general thought about playing one lineup in multiple contests versus a different lineup in each contest? Uh, I play several 20 player contests a night on FanDuel and I usually run with my top team in all contests, but I'd like to hear some other thoughts on this. Um, so I would... I probably would differentiate there and play a different lineup into each contest, provided that winning any given contest still like creates a positive, at least a positive outcome for you, but probably even maybe going one step further than that, like allows you to probably double up three X, maybe, maybe up to five X, right? That's going to be the big thing, right? Um, I think for me, I, I would say, you know, based on our, our DFS profit plan analysis would basically say that the, the optimal strategy is almost certainly to play a unique lineup into every single one of those, um, that it allows you to maximize your, that it, that it allows you to maximize your, uh, long-term profit with minimum, with minimal risk, right? Playing the same lineup in all of those is probably one of the highest variance strategies that you can choose to take while while also not actually truly generating more profit over the long term right because it's going to take so long to realize that 
profit, right? Like inevitably there's going to be some slate where you basically take, I say you're playing 10 of them, right? Where you take all 10 down and you have this huge ROI night. But while you were waiting for that to happen, you lost the opportunity to win one and two and a half X on that night and compound that money the very next night. That would be the DFS profit plan paradigm. Um, I think in in reality, I think there's probably some middle ground that you should look at and, and ask yourself, you know, like what's the total investment that you're paying into these contests? And for maybe the lowest prize to first, right? Like what are you comfortable with the maximum return being for that contest on a given night? Right. Like, let, let me put this into real numbers because I feel like I'm not being clear. Let's say you're playing $100, right? In, in all of these contests, you should figure out what is the lowest, what is the lowest amount you are comfortable taking home if you binked any of them. Right. And if it's $200, right. Is there, is there a contest that is below $200 to first? Right. Well, then maybe in that contest, Maybe you should not play a perf a completely unique lineup into that contest and allow that contest to basically be a way to get a little bit more action down on one of your other lineups, if that makes sense. And you can kind of find a middle ground in there that I think is a little bit different for every player. So, but let me know if that makes sense. I hopefully didn't like totally lose you there. Um, and I would lean, if you're, if you are confused, I would lean on the side of playing more unique lineups rather than less. Um, so but good question. Cool. Well, I think we will go ahead and leave it there for today. Unless there are any other questions, feel free to fire away at the last second here. If anybody's got anything else here for me, uh, we will be right back again here. Or I will be back here again. Uh, hopefully you too tomorrow at 2 PM Eastern uh, for another office hours stream. Um, we do have a, uh, a couple exciting things going on this week here. Um, at some point, <laughs> I know that's kind of vague here, but uh, definitely this week, I'll have Eric on here uh, on another uh, office hours to talk about some of the work that he's been doing on the baseball model here this season, uh, primarily around our our pitch count modeling and the way that we, uh, in the simulations, pull pitchers or leave them in in different sims and things like that. Uh, he has been working really hard over the past couple of weeks here to improve that part of the sim. I think the work that he's been doing is really cool there. And I will have him on here to talk a little bit about hit, uh, ask some questions. If you guys have questions as well, um, great opportunity to, to um, ask those questions. So look forward to that. And then we are expecting to have a uh, feature release here as well, hopefully this week. Um, that is pretty cool. That will allow you to edit your lineups in the app, like in a build. Uh, so if you are looking at a lineup and you think, God, that lineup is perfect, except I want a different pitcher, uh, as has been asked for for a very long time, uh, soon you'll be able to just swap that player out, save the new lineup, and that lineup will now be a part of your pool. Um, so we are finishing up some final touches there. Um, wanted to, to make sure that we got that into a pretty good spot here and got very close to release before I said anything like that or announced anything like that on stream, but I do think we are super close. So uh, some exciting stuff going on this week. So... Uh, anyway, good luck on the slate tonight. Remember to keep an eye on that weather um, just because you never know. Could get worse, could get better. Um, who knows? But uh, keep an eye on the weather. Good luck tonight. And I will see everybody here again tomorrow at two o'clock. See ya.